Well, good morning. As Aaron said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central and excited, honored to be with you and to bring God's word to you. We're in our third week of our four-part series in the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. I invite you now, as is our custom, to stand for the reading of God's word. This is Jonah chapter 3. It said, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, that you would give me the courage and the humility to get out of your way so that we might encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. God, would you give us eyes to see ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. As we prepare to dive into Jonah chapter 3, if you've been with us, you will notice that our story starts over again here in verse 1, kind of like the reset button on the original Nintendo. We're taken back to the very beginning, and we get a chance to start over. If you have your Bible open, you'll notice that verse 1 in chapter 3 is practically identical to verse 1 in chapter 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. But the key difference here in chapter 3 is that this time Jonah actually does it. Verse 3 says, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And what happens in the next seven verses is hard to believe. Probably even harder to believe than what happened in chapter 1. I think 
if we're honest, most of us would be more inclined to believe that someone got swallowed by a fish and somehow lived to tell about it than we are to believe that this random dude waltzed into a massive city, made some bold statement, and as a result, the whole city was converted. And before we dive into the text, I want you to ponder for a moment whether or not you believe this story is true. Daniel mentioned a few weeks ago that you don't need to get bogged down on whether or not the belly of the fish part of Jonah is true or not. And I wholeheartedly agree. However, I think whether or not you believe this part of the story is massively important. Because at the heart of your belief or disbelief of this story is an even greater question. That being, do you really believe that God is mightily at work in this world? Because if you do, then Jonah chapter 3 is very palatable. But if you don't, it sounds like a fairy tale, a myth. I assume many of you would say, sure, sure, we believe Jonah 3 happened. We believe God is mightily at work in this world. But I want to challenge your supposed belief a bit by asking this question. Do you actually believe that something like what happened in Jonah chapter 3 could happen today? I don't want you to answer that question question right now. I just want you to ponder that as we walk through this story. There's three aspects of the story that I want to highlight for you this morning. First, the content of Jonah's message. Second, the context of Jonah's message. And then third, the choice of the messenger. The content of Jonah's message, the context of Jonah's message, and then the choice of the messenger. Let's begin. What our text reveals is that Jonah enters into this massive city. He opens his mouth, says one sentence, and the whole city is converted. Which begs the question, what in the world did he say that caused such a dramatic outcome? Look again at verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. First thing I want to point out is is not what Jonah said, but what he did not say. If you remember from week one, Daniel pointed out that Nineveh was an exceedingly wicked city. Known for its violence, its oppression of the poor. Even children were slaughtered in this place. But what's interesting is that when Jonah enters in, he does not engage these things. He doesn't attack the Ninevites' present-day wanderings. He doesn't accuse them of being evil or condemn their violence and hatred. Instead, he calls into question their future. To use a theological term, he seeks to reset their eschatological bearings. Now, what are eschatological bearings? You, You probably know what bearings are. When someone is lost, they often talk about how they need to find their bearings. What they're saying is they need to figure out their position relative to one's surroundings. So they, can, they need to figure out where they are so they can know which way to go and how to move forward. That's what it means to find your bearings. But what is eschatology? 
Eschatology is the category we use to deal with matters concerning the end. It's the part of theology that deals with what is to come, the future. So look again now at our text, verse 3. Jonah enters into this now-oriented society, much like the one we live in today, and notice the nature of his message. It's completely eschatological. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What Jonah is saying, he's saying that something is coming in the future that deserves your attention right now. And that's how eschatology works. Listen to what Eugene Peterson says. He says, eschatology, when used rightly, the reality of the end returns to the present, shaping it for glory. You understand that? He's saying that our understanding of what is to come gives us purpose in the here and now. I love how the English word end reveals this truth about eschatology. When you think about the word end, it can mean both finish and purpose. And that's what's happening here because the truth is what we believe about the future always inevitably affects how we live in the here and now. As much as we try to be in the moment, we are inseparably inseparably tied to what we believe about what is to come. In the Ninevites, they had lost their bearings because they had gotten so wrapped up in the present. And God realized the Ninevites needed to be reoriented to the end in order to be able to recognize their purpose in the here and now. So we can see how that message would have impacted the Ninevites, but I wonder in what ways does Jonah's message actually speak to us today, Durham 2018? Last week, Daniel shared how he had been struggling with this idea of sacred sociology versus a dynamic movement of God. How he'd been wrestling with whether or not we, Christ Central Church, were simply practicing sacred sociology or actually a part of a dynamic movement of God. And the difference between the two is that in sacred sociology, we just embrace best practices good sociology. We play the right music. You know, we talk about the right things. We provide the right programs and then the people will come because we're just scratching the right itch. But a dynamic movement of God is something that happens in spite of sociology, something supernatural, something that we can't control or contain or explain away. And as much as I want to say that we are part of a dynamic movement, I was concerned by how easy it is for a church to slip into sacred sociology. Let me make this plain for you. If we come here each week because the music is really good, because this facility is absolutely gorgeous, because the lead pastor is kind of nice to look at, because Christ Central is a great place to meet people, to build friendships, to raise a family, because every time we leave this place, we feel a little better about ourselves. If we come here for those reasons, then we are practicing sacred sociology. Don't get me wrong, I I hope those things are true. That would be great if they were true, that we, we do have great music. This is a wonderful space. There's great community here. I hope that you leave encouraged, 
Those things are good and we're celebrating, but if that's the essence of what we're doing here, then we're missing the point. But there's hope. I think there's hope for us, and I think it's in Jonah chapter 3. Because the way to avoid sacred sociology is we have to hold on to our eschatological bearings. Because the inherent problem with sacred sociology is that it lacks eschatology entirely. It is by nature now-oriented. It demands that we live in our security-obsessed present. The danger is, to quote Eugene Peterson again, without right eschatology, we take considerable delight in what is here, but only what is here. Tourism replaces pilgrimage. Long, lawn games substitute for mountain climbing. Everyone is furnished with a Rand McNally roadmap and a handbook listing the best hotels and restaurants and the hours the museums are open. Without eschatology, the line goes slack and there's nothing pulling us to the heights, to holiness, to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. Certainly a dated illustration. I don't know if anyone has a Rand McNally roadmap anymore, but potent nonetheless. What is the eschatology that Jonah is getting at that echoes on every page of scripture that will keep us from practicing sacred sociology? Jonah gives us a snippet. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. But underneath that statement is a much broader eschatological truth. And that is that we were created by God and for God, for relationship with him. In 40 days, the people of Nineveh will bow before God, whether they want to or not. But one day, every knee will bow before him either voluntarily or involuntarily. What the Bible teaches is that we either bow before him or we will be, to use the words of Jonah chapter 3, overthrown. Church, that is the eschatological reality that keeps the line tight, that pulls us up to the heights, to holiness, to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. That's not real pretty, what I just said. It's offensive. But it's either true or it's not. And if it's true, then the reality of that eschatology must shape the way we live our lives in the here and now. Which brings me to my second point, the context of Jonah's message. At this point, you may be hearing this sermon and assuming that we've got boxes in the lobby full of bullhorns and we're going to commission you to go out in the streets and, and let them have it. 40 days and Durham will be overthrown. It's not what we're going to do, and here's why. Look again at the text, verse 4. It says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. What the text does not say is that Jonah came to the city wall and he began to shout over the wall. Rather, it says he went in, all the way in, a day's journey into this massive city before he opened his mouth. As one commentator says, he entered into the midst of their living, heard what they were saying, smelled the cooking, 
picked up colloquialisms, lived on the economy, not aloof from it, not superior to it. Our central, we must regain our eschatological bearings, but at the same time, our eschatology must be tempered by person and place. Tempered by the fact that we don't speak into a vacuum, but rather we speak into a place, a city, Durham. A city that has a culture, that has an identity, that has beauty and wonder and mystery. A city that matters to God. We don't speak into thin air, but rather to a person. To a person who has dignity and worth and value and a story. To a person who was created in God's image. Our mantra here at Christ Central is in the city for the city. And the truth is, there's no way that we can be for Durham if we aren't all the way in. Christ Central, what would it look like if we were to marry our eschatology with a love for this place? I wonder if we might begin to see each and every interaction a little bit differently that chat with your neighbor, that coffee with a friend, that visit to the hospital, that homework done with your child. I wonder if they all would take on a little more significance because you would be full aware in your interactions that you're interacting with God's people in God's place and that eternity is at stake. I'm not arguing for bullhorns, but rather that we go a day's journey in that we take up residence in this place. As Peterson says, this is our Jonah work, to give loving and leisurely attention to the everyday geographical details of my Nineveh life, and at the same time living in the urgency of the eschatological. Lastly, I want to look at the choice of the messenger. Assuming that this story is true, I want you to take a moment and ponder the fact that the all-powerful God, the God who in chapter 1 silenced the storm, who caused a fish to swallow a man and then spit him out three days later, this God chose to use a mere man with no formal training, no gifts in public speaking, no tricks up his sleeve, no miracles to show off, all this guy had going for him was obedience to God's call, and that took a little while. But God chose this man to be the bearer of his message of salvation. Do you really believe that God might want to use you to do his work in this city? Or do we leave that to Daniel and Aaron, Aisha, Demetrio? or certainly the elders and the Women's Leadership Council, they can handle that, right? They're the ones who God really wants to use. But it appears from this text that Jonah was just a regular old man. And God used him to rescue a whole city. I wonder if he might use you the same way. Conclusion, I want to return to my original question. Do you believe Jonah chapter 3? Do you, do you believe that it actually happened? Do you really believe that God is mightily at work in this world? If so, which Jonah are you going to be? Are you going to be Jonah chapter 1 who runs from the call? 
Are you going to be Jonah chapter 3 who heeds the call and is used by God to transform people's life? As a staff team, we are asking God to see 15 baptisms this year. And the reason we're doing this is because we believe that there is a dynamic movement of God happening in this city, that God is drawing people to himself, people that you would least expect, people like Jeff, people like me. God is drawing people to himself, and he's inviting us to join him in this movement. I want to conclude by inviting you to engage this place, this city that we love, with a dignified urgency to be in the city, for the city, always mindful of the city to come, believing that eternal souls are at stake here. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, Jonah chapter 3 is a profound picture of you at work in the world, drawing people to yourself. And I confess it's hard for me to believe that it's true, that by the power of your spirit, you are rescuing and redeeming people. Whole cities have been brought to you just by the word of your voice. Father, I pray that we would not be like Jonah in chapter one, but Jonah in chapter three, that we would believe that you are at work and when you call us that we would go, not with a bullhorn, but that we would go all the way in, that we would engage this place that we love, that we would engage the people that you created and we would bring the truth of the gospel to bear. And God, would you draw people to yourself for the sake of your name. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.